You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is where we'll be today. We do have our sermon notes available in our Google Drive folder if you need to access those during the sermon or if you'd like to look at them at a later time if you don't get all the notes taken down that you want to take today. John chapter 11 is the account of the resurrection of Lazarus. Um, It's the only time this miracle is mentioned in one of the four Gospels. Um, So that should jump out to us um, just because of what we know about John's purpose in writing, right? That we said at the very beginning that he's very clear that he has written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, and, and that's not just for lost people to come to Christ, that's for uh, maturing Christians to keep maturing. Um, and so the goal being John wanting to include things in his gospel that are specifically placed there so that we will believe in Jesus more. Um, and so this passage, this section is certainly one that, that very clearly fits into that category. Um, John wanting us to see some of the behind the scenes for why Jesus does things the way that he does, um, especially when it goes against um, some of our expectations. Um, so we're going to look at John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16 today. Um, we're going to cover it verse by verse. Um, and so we're going to jump right in this morning with our summary sentence um, so that we can get right into um, the text. Um, when I do my summary sentences, <clears throat> it, it would probably make more sense to do them at the very beginning of my sermon prep or my sermon uh, notes, um, but I typically write them at the end after I've kind of finished everything. So after I've finished all of my um, note organization and, and kind of outlining and laying out what it is that I'm going to teach, that's when I write my summary sentence. It's meant to really look back and capture everything as much as I can in one sentence. And um, most of the time I believe I'm pretty successful that I definitely feel like today's um, is one that truly captures everything that I want to say uh, in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Um, so that summary sentence says, while God's love is not always demonstrated in ways we would prefer, we can trust that his actions, even when delayed, will always lead to the best possible outcomes for our faith. While God's love is not always demonstrated in ways we would prefer, we can trust that his actions, even when delayed, will always lead to the best possible outcomes for our faith. The truths contained in that sentence are truths that we need to see and believe more and more in our life. Um, It's so easy to have our minds and our emotions wander away from that. Um, I think there's oftentimes things that we assume about God's love, and so we create expectations for how that love will be demonstrated. Um, Scripture talks about God's love being demonstrated in clear ways, um, and I think we oftentimes create ways that we believe his love should be demonstrated, and we are disappointed when it's not demonstrated that way, right? Um, So it's not always demonstrated in ways we would prefer, but we can trust the ways that he does choose to do it. We can trust those actions, even when they don't come in the timetable that we would prefer. 
Um, <clears throat> and we can always trust that his actions are going to lead to the best out- possible outcomes for our faith. And that's kind of the, the caveat there that we're talking about what's best for our faith, not what's best for our immediate um, desires, not what's best for our immediate happiness, not what's best for our immediate circumstances. That God works in such ways, He demonstrates His overwhelming love to us. Not always the ways, not not in always the ways we would expect. Not always in the timetable that we would hope for. But He always demonstrates His love to us, and it's always done in such a way where it leads to the best possible outcomes for our faith. And we see that message running through verses 1 through 16, that he's very clear in this passage that Jesus loves the people in this situation, but he loves them more than just in this situation, right? That he's got a bigger picture in mind in how he wants to demonstrate his love and how he is concerned about them, not just for the immediate time frame, but really for all eternity, right? For our kids, when Jesus delays in helping us it doesn't mean he doesn't love us. It means he loves us more than we could realize, right? That when we find it hard to see God's love in a situation because he's not doing it the way that we would prefer him do it, we're oftentimes quick to question whether he even loves us at all, right? Whereas the better thought process would be, man, he must love me in ways that I can't imagine because I don't see it clearly in this situation, right? So it must exceed beyond all of my expectations how he could be loving me in this situation, right? He's delaying maybe his actions for certain reasons. Whereas we would say, man, makes sense that if he loves me, he would do it right now, right? If he loved me, he would do it this way, right? And so His ways are better than our ways. And so when we're in situations where it's not happening the way that we think it should be happening, when it's not happening uh, when we think it should be happening, man, it should draw our attention to the fact that, okay, he does love me, he does demonstrate it, and it's always designed for the best outcome of my faith, not necessarily my immediate happiness. For our kids, when he's not helping us, delaying helping us, it's not that he doesn't love us, it means he loves us more than we could realize. In this chapter here, verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. When we started our study in the Gospel of John, we said that John uh, assumes the reader has some prior knowledge to the other three Gospels that John has written later. Other three Gospels are already in place. John expects that there is some familiarity with the life of Christ, things that Christ did. Um, He's assuming that his readers have probably read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke before because he hasn't told us about this account yet. He'll tell us in chapter 12 about this account of um, Mary anointing his feet with with the perfume. Hasn't happened yet, but he draws our, our remembrance to that, that, hey, that's who I'm talking about. That's the family that I'm talking about. I'll tell you about that incident later, but just to set the stage so we all understand who we're talking about, that's the family that he's referencing. And so John assumes a uh, prior knowledge to the Gospels. Um, <clears throat> there's some odd scenarios in this story, right? One that Jesus says the sickness won't lead to death, but Lazarus dies, 
right? Um, it says when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. But it, it does end up in death for Lazarus. So we have to do something with that. But then also it says that Jesus loves them, but he doesn't leave when he finds out about this, right? It says, um, verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Right? If you're reading this for the very first time, no prior knowledge, you would expect it to flow in such manner where it would say, Now Jesus loved Martha, Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he immediately departed to be with them, right? He immediately departed to, to go heal him, right? But instead, the text says that because he loved him, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Um, there, there's some theological tension in verses 1 through 16 because as the story unfolds, what we find is that Jesus preferred Lazarus to die, because it meant something greater could happen, right? I mean, that, that has to be clear from this passage, that Jesus preferred Lazarus not be healed and that instead he die, that that was the preference here in this section. And Jesus even said, I'm glad I wasn't there because I would have healed him and the greater things would have been missed out on. Um, why, is that, why is that theological tension because we can read that and we can say, yeah, I'm okay with that. But I don't know that we're always okay with it in our own life. Right? I don't know that we're okay with admitting that undesirable circumstances are the preferred circumstances for us because God wants to do something greater than if he reversed them. Right? Because in our minds, it would make sense. If he loves me, he would do it this way. If he if he loves Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and he has the power to heal, right, he's not limited in his ability to do so, he loves them, then he needs to go do it, right? Like, that's what, that's what our emotions say. That's what our thought process says, is that if you're a good God and you have the power to be good, why would you not be good in the ways that we define good in every situation? He has the power to heal. He could go and heal, or he could heal from a distance. Either way is fine, but he chooses not to, and he very specifically chooses not to. The text is very clear that he chooses to stay put. He chooses not to heal. He says, I'm, I'm glad that I wasn't there to heal, right? So there's some theological tension because what's being said here is that he preferred Lazarus to die because it meant something greater could happen. I think we're fine with that happening in, in the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I don't know that we're always okay with saying that for our own life, right? So there's some tension there. What's, what's the ultimate fruit of this story is that it leads to the decisive action of the Jews to kill Jesus. I mean, we've been kind of teetering on that with a desire to arrest him, a desire to stone him, a desire to do away with him. We will see at the end of chapter 11 that it, this is a done deal now. Like we are, we are finished with listening to Jesus we will now work every single day to make sure that we put an end to him, right? So this story <clears throat> leads to the crucifixion. Like it sets off a, a, a reaction, a chain reaction of events that lead to the crucifixion of Jesus, which means, which means that if it's not done this way, then we maybe don't get to the crucifixion in the timetable that we do, 
right? So there's a lot of things at play here in, in a sovereign God overseeing all of these events, right? He's leading history to this climactic point in time where Jesus is in the, on the cross for, for all the sins that have been passed over in the Old Testament, all the sins that are to come in the New Testament and beyond. It's all coming to this event at Calvary. And this single event really triggers the Jews to work and move towards that crucifixion, okay? So let's jump in and see how this begins to unfold in verse three. So the sisters, right, Lazarus is ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. We don't know how long it's been since Jesus has been with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We don't know how long Lazarus has been sick. We don't know if it came on him suddenly. We don't know if it's been a steady progression of of him and his health failing. But we know that they reach a point in time where they say, we need Jesus right here, right? That he's not going to make it without Jesus. We need Jesus now if Lazarus is going to be spared, right? And so they send a message to Jesus, Um, to make sure that he's aware, to make sure that he knows what's happening with Lazarus. And so they sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, we don't know if anything else was technically said. We don't know if the messenger brought further information. We don't know if the messenger added to this. We just simply know what John recorded. The message came that, hey, Lazarus is sick. The one that you love is ill, right? I think we can read into this and assume what the expectation was, right? We are reminding you that one that you love very dearly is sick. You have been faithful to heal people that you are not as familiar with. You have been faithful to heal people that you do not share the same intimacy of friendship and fellowship with. We are now appealing to you to come and do the same to the one whom you love, right? I don't think it's a mistake to say that Jesus had a unique relationship with this family, Right? So God loves the world, but I think in the, the historical life of Jesus, he obviously had deeper relationships with some versus others. He has that with his disciples, and he certainly shares that with this family. And so they appeal to the fact that because you love him, we are informing you of the ill that has taken place in his life, right? with the assumption being that you will act out of that love and bring healing to Lazarus, right? So point number one this morning is be careful not to assume what God's love looks like. Be careful not to assume what God's love looks like. Now, does that mean that we don't appeal to God for healing in certain situations or really in any situation? No. It would be a mistake, though, to say that because God does not act that he failed to demonstrate love, right? And, and, and I'm not, I wouldn't even dare to assume that Mary and Martha feel unloved when Jesus doesn't deliver here, because I think we'll see in, in Martha's conversation that she doesn't seem to be wavering in her faith. I think she's continuing to confess that, that Jesus can do anything and everything that he wants to, right? But for us, as we are maturing in our faith, I think this situation is it's, it's a helpful pause for us to say, okay, let's be very careful that we don't assume what God's love has to look like in our minds. That when we have a situation, maybe very similar, somebody who's very close to us who is ill and moving towards death 
and we are praying and appealing for healing that we don't assume that the only way that God can show love is to bring healing to that situation. Be careful not to assume what God's love looks like. For our kids, sometimes Jesus does things differently than we expected. Right? I think Mary and Martha fully expected him to come running. I think they fully expected him to show up. I think they never expected him to miss the funeral. Right? Even if the message came to him and Lazarus dies before he can get there, I think they expected, because it was only about a day's journey from where he was, to where the messenger had to come to give this message, about a day's journey to get back to where they were. So they, they had removed themselves because there was uh, the threat of hostility towards Jesus. So they had distanced themselves a little bit from that area. Only about a day's journey to get back, though. So I think it was probably beyond their worst-case scenario that Jesus would miss the funeral. I mean, by the time Jesus shows up, I mean, Lazarus has been put away. Like, he is in the tomb. He has been buried. They are in a different stage of grieving now than they were a couple of days prior to this, right? Be careful not to assume what God's love looks like. Number one underneath this, a right relationship with Jesus provides peace in the midst of trouble. A right relationship with Jesus provides peace in the midst of trouble. What do I mean by that? I think Lazarus, Mary, and Martha have a fantastic relationship with Christ. I think they are right with God, right? Not just that they are saved and followers. I think they are in right relationship in the sense that they are believing believers, right? They're, they're not just Christians by name only. They are following Jesus. They are, they are pursuing holiness in their life. They are seeking to apply everything that they know up to this point through God's revelation. And what it affords them is when they are in a moment of crisis to be able to appeal to God, knowing that they can say, hey, you love me, right? Not because of anything that I've done, but just this assurance and peace that comes from knowing we are in right relationship with our Father, right? So I think there's, there's, there's implications there for us. Man, we don't, ever want to, uh, we don't ever want to have to face or approach trials and difficulties without knowing that God's good favor is upon us, right? Like we, we want his good presence upon us, not that disciplining father who has to bring trials into our life, uh, difficulties into our life as a means of discipline to get us back to him. Right? This isn't a case where you would want to be reaping what you have sown sinfully and God having to correct you with difficulties and trials. I think this is a situation where they're saying, hey, we are, we are striving to be obedient. We have found ourselves in an undesirable circumstance where our loved one is ill and sick. We can appeal and know that, that we, can, we can say that you love him because of the right relationship that he's in. And it brings a peace in the midst of this trouble. He loved Lazarus prior to chapter 11, right? They had a relationship. They were, they were, they were friends, right? Like they, 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 were, they were followers of him. They had probably dined with him multiple times in their house. Maybe they even uh, knew each other earlier in life growing up. He's got a relationship, a right relationship with Jesus that provides peace in the midst of this trouble. Number two, Mary and Martha appeal to the love of Jesus as a reason for him to act. We don't have any problem with that. 
we just have to guard and protect ourselves from disappointment if he doesn't choose to act in the ways that we expect. They are calling upon Jesus and believe that he will heal because he loves us. The problem is the circumstances would appear to indicate that he doesn't love them, right? From a, from a human standpoint, you look at the circumstances in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, you would be hard-pressed to say that Jesus clearly loves these people from what our world would typically say about a situation, right? One, the all-powerful creator of the universe who sustains all things allows one of his best friends to get sick, right? Well, that doesn't seem very loving. Jesus controls everything. Why in the world would he allow his, his good friend to become sick? Jesus doesn't come and heal him, right? Like he has the power to do so. He could do it from a distance even if he was pressed for time. He doesn't come to heal, Circumstances would appear to indicate that he doesn't love. But as we learned in John chapter 9, we have to remember that our circumstances aren't a good indicator of whether God loves us or not. Remember in John chapter 9, that's the philosophy that the disciples had. They see this blind man and they say, oh, who sinned, him or his parents, to put him in this bad situation? Had the chance to teach this to our high school students this week in chapel. Came back to John chapter 9 in light of what we've experienced as a school, right? And I challenged them with this idea that, look, your circumstances are probably not ever really going to be a good indicator as to whether or not God loves you or not, right? And I, and I shared examples with them. I said, you could be a senior Christian athlete, loves Jesus, pursuing him faithfully, have this tragic injury that costs you the rest of your season, Right? And you could immediately start to despair and say, why does God not love me? Right? The most important thing in my life right now is my soccer season or my football season or my basketball season, and it's been taken from me, and here I am. I'm the one doing everything right. I'm the one striving to be a follower of him, and now I'm the one sitting on the sidelines. And that person right there who's playing, like, I know what they're doing on the weekend. Right? Why are they prospering and why am I failing? Right? But that's, that's what you see in the book of Psalms. Right? So we know that circumstances are not a good indicator of whether God loves us or not. We can't, we can't measure God's love based off of how things are going in our life. Emotionally, I'm sure Mary, Martha, and probably even Lazarus emotionally would have said that Jesus doesn't love them at all. I imagine Mary and Martha are daily looking for him to come running. They are looking for him to come and heal. And when that is no longer possible, I think they're definitely looking for him to come and be there for the burial, to be that comforter for them, right? Emotions could have easily gotten the best of them to make them think that, does Jesus even love us at all? It's in these type of times that truth has to inform our emotions when it appears that God doesn't love us. Let me say that again. Truth needs to inform our emotions during difficult times when it appears God doesn't love the, the lost world needs to see us in situations where it appears that God doesn't love because he's not acting in the way that everybody would expect and to see individuals still clinging to him, still loving him, still believing him, still trusting him. The lost world needs to see that. The lost world needs to see that. We have to be careful not to assume what God's love looks like. Because we don't always get the background or the 
behind the scenes story like we do here. Imagine if, if we didn't get some of the, the background here. We might would be confused as to why this plays out the way that it does. Right? Why didn't he come and heal? But thankfully, we get some insight here. We get Jesus sharing some of his thoughts, right? That Jesus knows right up front here that this is bigger than him dying from an illness. That God's glory is at stake. The Son of God may be glorified through this situation. We even see that Jesus, again, preferred not to be there for the sake of his disciples and their faith. So we can proceed in this story. Oh, yeah, I see what's going on here. I see what God's doing. Like, I fully trust him with the rest of this story. We have to take the truth from this story and apply it to our life when we don't get to see the the behind-the-scenes things for our story. We have to assume and trust that what's being said in a passage like this is also true for our situation, that how God is carrying us through situation, that there's something bigger at play than just our circumstances and our happiness in the midst of those circumstances. Be careful not to assume what God's love looks like. Number two, be willing to put God's glory above your desires. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death for it is the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Be willing to put God's glory above your desires. We know we are maturing in our faith when we start to see these things not at odds with each other. Right? That it's not either I can have my desires or God can have his glory, but we can't have both together. It's also a sign of maturing faith when our desires start to be shaped by his glory, right? Because if if we do put our earthly desires up against his glory, they, they very likely will be at odds with each other. But as we begin to condition our desires to fall under the umbrella of his glory, then they no longer are at odds, that they are both occurring in our life. We get to see God's glory happening. We get to see our desires being fulfilled because our desires are now being shaped and defined by what he calls glorious. Number one, our earthly perspective limits our ability to see where God is taking us. Go back to where we talked about in John chapter 10. He's our shepherd, right? So he he leads the flock. He secures them in the fold. He's that door where nothing can come in, nothing can go out without his permission, Right? He's, the, he's the great protector of his sheep, leads them. Psalm 23 leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, oftentimes to get to those green pastures where we can lay down. Very likely that we can't see the green pastures when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. Right? It's, it's part of getting to the green pastures. We have to trust that they're on the other side. Our earthly perspective limits our ability to see where God is taking us. We don't always get to have that bird's eye view. I think one of the commentators, and, and maybe some of y'all read this because I think it's in one of the two that I recommended to you in our study. He talked about, he kind of relates this to an experience he had where he was flying in from an, to an airport and could see a massive traffic jam and could see everything happening. And then when he lands and gets in his car, everybody around him is confused as to, you know, what's happening up there. And he's like, well, I know what's happening up there. I could see it from the plane. I could see 
how long the traffic is? Because that's, that's one of the first questions you ask when you get in a traffic jam is like, uh, how far is this, right? Like if you've got somebody with you, you're like, hey, can you pull this up and see like when does the red turn to yellow and when does it turn back to green, right? Like how long do we have to do this, right? Because oftentimes you don't, you don't have that perspective. You can't see, right? God has that perspective and we don't always get that perspective, right? Our earthly perspective uh, makes it hard sometimes for us to see where God is taking us. But number two, his glory must become our desire because its end is better. His glory must become our desire because its end is better, right? Jesus says, this illness doesn't lead to death. Well, it does temporarily. It actually leads to God's glory, though. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's the meshing of the two right there. Your needs and your desires, they are met in the glories of Jesus Christ. Note that this passage comes right after that passage that I told you in Philippians 4 where Paul is revealing the secret to the life of contentment, right? That he has found a way to live where he is always content even when he's on an earthly high where circumstances are fantastic and when he's on an earthly low where he wishes he could change everything about his circumstances. He has found a way to live in a state of contentment trusting the shepherd who creates a life where we don't want, right? So it's after that passage where Paul is relaying to this church that he, he is experiencing ongoing contentment. Even when his circumstances are failing around him, he's content, he's content, he's content. He's not wanting, he's not wanting, he's not wanting. Well, what is the assurance that he gives back to these people who are still learning to be what he is, he is maybe further along in? He says, my God will supply every need of yours too. Right? It's not just me, Paul, who's going to experience this. You too can experience this, this overwhelming supply where every need is being met, but it's according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We talked about the, the glory of God becoming our desire in Romans chapter 5 a couple of weeks ago. Remember it says, Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, right? Like we are rooting for the glory of God. It is our hope. It is what we desire to see. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Right, Paul says, man, the the, the end goal is to have such an incredible hope in the glory of God that it sustains you through the sufferings. But some of us are hesitant to get to that point because that means sometimes real sufferings. To hope in the glory of God means to put God's glory above our earthly desires. I wrote in my notes, can I be content following the shepherd this way? 
the shepherd's going to take me down a path where God's glory is the end goal and not my earthly desires, then it means some of my earthly desires aren't going to be met. Right? means that I may never get married, even though I have this great desire to be married. may mean that I never end up with a child, even though I have this great desire to be a, a, a mommy or a daddy. Right? It may mean that I end up losing a child, even though my greatest desire is to have that child grow up and to be a granddaddy or a grandmommy. Right? Like, shepherd leading me down this path, it's all about God's glory and not about my earthly desires. And he's calling my desires to fit underneath his glory. And he's wanting me to now hope in that. Not hope in my earthly desires being met, but hoping in the glory of God. Right? And, and, and that requires us to step back and say, do I want to go that way? Because the, 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 the sinful man that's still being fixed says, we need to U-turn. Like, I don't know if I want to go down that road. That's where the valley of shadow of death is. It's the green pastures that are on the other side. And, and sometimes we have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to put God's glory above our desires? Shepherd's going to lead us to the green pastures where we can lay down by the still waters. It just may be a hard road to get there. And those green pastures of satisfaction, they flow from the riches of the glory of Jesus Christ, not some list of earthly expectations that we may be conditioned to think we are due, right? Be careful not to assume what God's love looks like. Be willing to put God's glory above your desires, right? It's not his job to give you the job that you want. It's not his job to give you the money that you feel like you need to have the house that you desire to have. Those are all earthly desires. It's all a list that we're conditioned to think that we are owed, right? He's more concerned about our desires fitting under the umbrella of his glory. He says, this doesn't lead to death, leads to God's glory. This, this situation is not going to end in death. It's going to end in the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Number three, be ready to embrace delays as intentional acts of love. Be ready to embrace delays as intentional acts of love. For our kids, God is always working for our good, even when we don't see it. A lot of us live in, in, in a setting where we have to wait on other people to do things, and their delays hinder us from being able to do what we need to do, right? It's one of the reasons that I'm so hard sometimes at delegating to others, because I don't like to wait on people to do something that maybe I don't have the time to do, but even in the lack of time that I have to do it, I still feel like I'm probably going to get it done faster than the person that I delegated to, right? Like I have a real hard time delegating things. I hate waiting on people. I hate waiting on delays, right? Because most of the time they're not intentional acts of love when it comes to coworkers, right? Like rarely do you have a coworker that's like, yes, Mr. Vincent, I'd love to do that for you. I'm going to wait though, because I think it's better for you, if I do wait to, 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 to do this, right? Like it's usually, ah, I forgot to do that, right? Like you said it, and then I deleted the email, and yeah. Even when, when I'm asked to do something, 
right? One of my teachers says they need something. And then three weeks later, I find out their TV's still not working. It's because I haven't gotten them an Apple TV that they asked for, right? It wasn't intentional acts of love, right? Like it's me forgetting to write it down, right? So we, we are used to delays being not acts of love, but being forgetfulness, right? Like a lack of concern. So it would be very easy for somebody like Mary Martha in this situation to say, man, he just got real busy with other people, right? Like, man, he's got that teaching ministry and I know he's being asked all the time to heal people and he just probably forgot. Or, or maybe he didn't love Lazarus as much as we thought he did. Maybe him and Lazarus had some type of fallout that Lazarus didn't tell us about or, you know? Like, we're not conditioned to see delays as being good things, right? Like we're usually conditioned to think, man, I'm frustrated this person doesn't value this or think that this is as important as I do. It's totally different with God and his delays, right? Like his delays, and this passage clearly tells us this, his delays are intentional acts of love. He, do, he does it on purpose, right? Like he makes us wait for certain things on purpose because it's better for us if we have to wait. It's better for us if we have to wait. And it's not always like a sinful thing that causes us to have to wait. He just looks at the situation and says, it'll be better if I don't do it right now and if I do it later and if I do it this way versus the way they actually asked for it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Right, I told you, Mary and Martha appealed to the fact. They said, Jesus, you love him? So we're letting you know that he is sick. And I said, we kind of read into that and we assume what they mean is come heal him because you love him. John says, oh, he definitely acted because he loved him, but he acted by staying put for two days. He does it because he loves him. It just looks different than what was expected. He, number one, demonstrates his love by not acting immediately in the situation. He demonstrates his love by not acting immediately in the situation. He doesn't heal because he loves them. And that's hard for us to reconcile, right? How can God not act in this situation? How could God not act and allow someone to die in this situation and me still believe that he loves everybody in that situation? If he has the power to do it, he's not limited. How, how can he still love people in that situation? It's because we don't have the bird's eye perspective to see what's happening out in front of us. Like what's happening on the other side. Like all we see is the car in front of us and we see the traffic and we don't see the end of it, right? We see the valley of the shadow of death. We don't see the green pastures on the other side, but Jesus does. Because he loves Lazarus, he stays two days longer in the place where he was. He demonstrates his love by not acting immediately in the situation. Number two, his passive action enables something greater than immediate action. And I put passive because I never like to say that Jesus is passively doing anything because, I mean, he holds the universe together every second, every breath, right? Like, so he's never really passively doing anything. But from our perspective, he's passively sitting here in... in a day's uh, journey away and not doing what they, they want him to do, right? 
So I'm using passive loosely because from our perspective, it is him passively waiting. His passive action enables something greater to happen than the immediate action. You think Mary and Martha would have rejoiced over him healing the illness? Oh, absolutely. Would their faith have increased? Absolutely. Would the disciples' faith have increased? Probably. But they'd also seen Jesus do this before, too. Right? Something great would have happened had he healed Lazarus in his illness. But by not healing him, some far greater things happen. I already told you, one of the far greater things that happens is that Jesus ends up on the cross, right? Like this leads to his crucifixion, leads to him dying in our place, absorbing God's wrath, opening the veil for us to enter into his presence with, with all the peace, right? All the forgiveness. Passively waits so that something greater can happen. He stays out of a desire for God's glory and a love for the family. He seeks to meet their spiritual needs over their physical needs, right? He's far more concerned about their faith and their faith growing than he is about their immediate emotional state and the grieving of the loss of Lazarus. Doesn't even show up to comfort them during the funeral process. He's far more concerned about their spiritual needs than their physical needs. God's going to receive glory from the increased faith of everybody involved in this story. One of the main reasons that he delays, and we'll get to this next week, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, right? He is dead, and there's no question about it. The delayed arrival allows for all the doubts to be removed about the validity of Lazarus's death, this isn't a sleight of hand. This isn't him passing out. This isn't him being mostly dead, right? Princess Bride, right? He's not mostly dead here where we can still revive him and bring him back. He is gone. He is dead. He has been put away. They had some weird theology. I don't know where it all comes from, but I think they believed after like day two or day three, like the soul had vacated the body at that point. I don't, know, I don't think that's scriptural, but I think that was kind of their their belief. So I think Jesus is even intentional to work in their belief system so that no doubters could arise and say, oh, well, his soul hadn't left his body. It's only been a day and a half, right? So of course he could raise him back from the dead because the soul was still there. I mean, he basically eliminates all the excuses and all the reasons to doubt. He's been dead four days. He's been tucked away in the tomb. Funeral's over. His soul is gone, right? And then Jesus brings him back from the dead. The delays were intentional acts of love. They're not your boss forgetting to do something that you asked him to do. They're not a coworker that you've delegated something to who forgot. God's delays are intentional acts of love. Number four, be preparing to filter death through the lens of God's control. And I was very intentional in not saying be prepared. Because I don't know if you could ever be prepared for death but I think you can be preparing for it, right? Um, I'm just telling you, if we stay here long enough, we're gonna experience death in our church family at some point. We just are. I mean, statistics say people are born and they die, right? Like that's just what statistics say. So if we're here long enough, right, and, and we don't disband, we don't fall apart, right, 
If our church stays here long enough, we will experience death within our church family at some point. Somebody's going to age out, pass away. God's going to call them home, right? We will experience it. And I think as we are maturing in our faith, it's our responsibility to be preparing for it because 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says we don't grieve as those without hope. And I think it's an unfair expectation to say that you can reach the point where you're having to deal with death and not grieve as somebody who has no hope if you haven't really been trying to prepare for that. If you haven't been feeling, filling yourself with truth, seeing what God's word has to say in passages like this, you won't be prepared to face death and grieve it any differently than a lost person. But passages like this give us the ammunition to push back against the enemy when the enemy would desire for us to despair in the midst of death, right? Be preparing to filter death through the lens of God's control. Without preparing, we will grieve like others, all right? So we, we call our church sovereign hope because we want to constantly remind ourselves that our hope is in the sovereignty of God, that he is in control of everything, including death, right? He's in control of everything, including death. So let's go back to the text here. It says, then after this, he said to the disciples, so after he's not just mostly dead, he is definitely dead. Then Jesus says to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking, we're just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. All right? First thing under here. For our kids, death like sleeping because it's only temporary. Jesus uses this analogy here to give us a good Christian perspective about death. We can trust that God controls the timing of death. We can trust that God controls the timing of death, right? The the disciples are fearful about going back because they're fearful that Jesus is gonna die and maybe them too, right? Like Jesus, they're trying to kill you there. Why would we go back there? Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world, right? What's he saying there? I think he's saying that he's not fearful about putting himself or the disciples in danger because his daytime has not run out yet, right? Where's the 12 hours come from? Well, they would have broken down their days, not because they were ignorant per se, but they broke their days down in like daylight and nightlight, right? So they had about 12 hours of daylight as far as how they would operate. Be similar to us thinking in terms of like eight hour days because that's what we typically think of as a normal work day, right? So he's saying, look, We've got like this normal day of work and then we have like the nighttime where we don't work anymore. What he's saying is, is that I'm not done working. I cannot die until daytime is over for me, right? Like he's fully, he fully understands he's going to die on the cross. He knows that time is coming, but he is not fearful. He doesn't have to fear about some type of premature death for himself, right? So he's basically telling them, look, it's still daytime. We still have work to do. We're not gonna operate in fear about dying early. He's not fearful about putting himself or disciples in danger. He is safe for the prescribed time of his life. He is safe for the prescribed time of his life. That scripture is way too intentional about saying that at the right moment in time, Jesus came and Jesus died, right? Not an accidental thing, 
not God just all of a sudden deciding, hey, this is a good time to send Jesus. Like it was very intentional. This was the right time, the right moment in history for him to do this. And I think it's absolutely true that our lives are the exact same way. That we can't die prematurely outside of God's plans for us. He tells us in the book of Psalms, he has numbered our days. He knows exactly what they are. Right before we are ever born, he knows what our life looks like. He knew exactly how long Piper Muscle's life was supposed to last. We have no idea why he stopped it earlier than we would have expected. We have no idea at Trinity why that would happen, right? But I have no doubt in my mind that it did not catch him off guard, right? Like he's not surprised, right? It's, it's, it's exactly what he, what he, from the heavenly perspective, knew was going to happen, Right? Life, listen to this, life cannot be extended with concern, nor can it be shortened with hostility, right? Jesus is telling his disciples, look, we could stay right here and not go back there, and it's not going to make my life last any longer. So we can be as careful as we want to be, but it's not going to protect me from dying when I'm supposed to die. We can also be a little dangerous right here, right, and go see Lazarus' family in hostile territory, and know that we're not putting ourselves at risk of dying prematurely. And and, and I think that's the same for us too, right? So Jesus is saying, look, we're not going to let the fear of death hinder how we operate on a daily basis. And this should be absolutely true for us. It should be absolutely true for us as parents too, to release us from some type of fear of, of, of overly worrying about our children even. And they're in the hands of the father and the son crossing the street, right? there's not really a third hand needed to protect them. That like they are in the safest place possible. We can trust God controls the timing of death. Number two, we can trust that God controls the extent of death. And now we gotta go fast. We can, control, we can trust that God controls the extent of death. Because it's not final, right? Like he talks about it in terms of sleeping. It's a different perspective on death when you have hope the sleeping analogy. We don't have to fear it happening or despair when it does happen, right? After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant uh, taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, right? So he uses the sleeping analogy to help us to see that death is not final. Number three, we can trust that God controls the fruits of death. He says he's glad he was not present. Otherwise, the greater benefits would have been missed. Well, what's gonna happen as a result of this death? He says, so that you may believe. Well, these guys have already believed. We've already highlighted multiple times in this gospel where it says the disciples believed, the disciples believed. But that's where I've been trying to help you to see that belief is not a one-time thing where there's no expectations of your belief continuing to deepen, right? Do we get saved at a point in time in history? Absolutely. So there's, it's correct to say that I believed in Jesus when I was five years old at a Sunday school class. But if that's the only time that my belief was, was changed or, or demonstrated, then I'm probably still wallowing in some very, very, very immature belief right? The disciples are continuing to be given opportunities to believe in him more, believe in him more, believe in him more, not so they can be saved more, 
simply because their faith can be strengthened. Their trust in him can be stronger, right? He receives more glory for that. When, when his creatures are trusting him in the midst of difficulties, God is glorified in that. So Jesus says, I want your faith to increase. I want you to believe. And so I'm thankful that I wasn't there so that you could believe when we do show up. But let us go to him, he says. The disciples' faith is going to be strengthened here. Mary and Martha's faith is going to be strengthened. And the crucifixion is going to be set in motion. These are all fantastically great things that happen as a result of Lazarus' death. Again, we're given the fruit in this story, right? Like it's served to us on a silver platter, and and Jesus says, here's the good things that came out of Lazarus' death. We don't always get that in, in our earthly experiences. But the way that we grieve as others who have no hope is that we trust the silver platter is there somewhere with all the good things laid out on it. And even if we don't see it until we get there in eternity, they are still there, right? The good fruit is still coming. The greater things are still coming even when we don't see it. It's passages like this that help us to know that it's there even when we can't see it, all right? So let's look at application for us. I gave you kind of a a, a slot to write some things about Christian maturity. This This isn't the only description for Christian maturity, but I think this is true for somebody who is maturing in their faith. They are learning to filter every situation as an opportunity for God to be glorified through you. Christian maturity is learning to filter every situation you face as an opportunity, not as a disappointment, right? As an opportunity for God to be glorified through you, right? So things are going great. There's an opportunity there for God to be glorified. Sometimes it's easier to see those opportunities. Things not going great, there's opportunity there. We push back against the disappointment and we find the opportunities for God to be glorified when we are mourning, when we are weeping, when we are suffering, that we don't do those things. We don't go through the valley of the shadow of death like a lost person. We don't grieve as those who have no hope, right? We go through the difficult path looking for ways for God to be glorified. So how do we do that practically? Three things that I would give you. Number one, anticipate ways to glorify God prior to situations occurring. Anticipate ways to glorify God prior to situations occurring. Are you allowing the knowledge you gain to prepare you for life's toughest challenges? Are you striving to see death as potential gain rather than overwhelming loss. Let me just give you one example for how, because I had you guys wrestling with the question, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. How does something like this passage help us when we are grieving potentially the loss of somebody? How does it look different for me than a lost person? I think one thing that ought to be really different is the type of questions that we're asking in the midst of it, Right? Lost person, why? Why, why, why? Right? Why would God do this? Or or why, this is exactly why I won't follow your God because these type of things happen. Right? I think the believing person's question to ask and not to minimize the the, the grief or the mourning or the sorrow because I don't think you're expected to just 
not have those things there because you're a Christian, right? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is going to weep at the death of his friend, right? But I think we as believers need to start asking the questions far faster than maybe we typically see believers, and that's how do I glorify God in the midst of this, right? Like, how do I do that? Because my rejoicing is in the hope of the glory of God and not my earthly desires being met. One of my earthly desires has not been met here, typically when we're going through death, right? But if we know the shepherd is leading us to the glory of God, how do we glorify him in the midst of that loss? And that is not an easy question to ask, but let me tell you something. It's a far easier question to ask before you go through it, right? You wait until you're in it to start trying to wrestle with how could God be glorified in the midst of this? It's going to be months and maybe years down the road before you're ready to really address that question. I think we can anticipate ways to glorify God prior to situations occurring to help make sure that when those situations occur, we're ready, we're ready to glorify him. So number two, look for ways to glorify God in every situation that comes. What does this passage help us to see? It helps me to see that nothing happens by chance, nothing happens without God's allowance, and nothing happens without God's purpose right? There's a lot of intentionality in verses 1 through 16. Bad things are happening, and Jesus is intentionally not doing some things and intentionally doing some things. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens without God's allowance. Nothing happens without God's purpose, which means you will never encounter a situation in life in which God cannot be glorified. The opportunities are there for us to glorify him in any and every situation, because anything that we're going through didn't happen by chance, didn't happen without God allowing it, and didn't happen without a purpose. There's purpose there, and God is in the midst of the purpose. We seek to find ways to glorify him, trusting that he has purposes in place, greater purposes than if he had done something different. And then number three, lastly, take faithful action steps, even when you aren't fully trusting him. Sometimes we have to, we have to act like we believe him, even when we're wrestling still with the belief right? Because look what Thomas does here at the end of this. Two ways to read this passage. One, that Thomas is, is a doubting Thomas, and, and we can just rip all the credit away from him and just trash on him in this passage. Or we can say, you know what? Guy's got some spunk there, doesn't he? Right? Like he's like, all right, let's go with him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him, right? So you're like, does he believe or does he not believe? Well, he's definitely doubting here, right? Because his expectation is, we're probably gonna get stoned, right? We're gonna go see dead Lazarus and we're gonna end up dead just like him because they're gonna stone us. But what you gotta love about Thomas is he says, lead the way, right? Like, he's still gonna follow Jesus into it. This would have been a great opportunity for Thomas to be like, I'm out, Right? Like, why would we do that? That makes no sense to go back where they're trying to kill you to see somebody who's already dead. He says, I think we're going to die. But I'll go with you and we'll die there. All right, sometimes you have to take steps to follow Jesus even when you're not really trusting him with the direction that he's taking you. That there's still something inside of you that says, we'll figure it out when we get there. All right? And, and that's, I think that's what Thomas demonstrates here. He's, he's concerned, he's lacking some trust here, 
but he still says, I'm going to go with you. Even if I think we're going to die, even if I think you're not going to be able to protect us, I'm still going to go with you. There's still an element of trust that he's, that he's clinging to in the midst of the story. I think it's important for us to see that too. Take faithful action steps even when you aren't fully trusting him. Family worship questions. What hopes do we have as Christians when experiencing the death of someone we love? And then number two, what are some ways that God can receive glory when someone dies? Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for passages like this because they help us when we go through similar situations too. God, all of us are going to be faced, if we haven't already been faced, with loved ones who are sick, and we would love to see you heal them. And for reasons beyond our comprehension, you don't. God, protect us from ever boxing you in to where the only way that we believe you can demonstrate love is to do it our way. God, help us to see that sometimes you delay and do things differently. And it's your intentional way of loving us. God, I pray that you would um, help us to be able to filter struggles and difficulties, particularly situations that involve death. Help us to filter those things through seeing you as one who is in control of all. God, prepare us on this side of the valley of the shadow of death to be able to glorify you when we're in that valley. God, help our earthly desires to be shaped and transformed to mesh with your glory, not to be in conflict with it. Help us to set aside the things that don't fit into your plans and to be okay with it. Help us to trust you. And Lord, when we're finding it hard to trust you, help us to keep pressing on and following you even in the midst of some of those doubts. God, help us to see that situations like this strengthen our faith. They help us to trust in you more. So God, whatever it is we're facing, whatever it is we're gonna face in the near future, help us to look for ways to glorify you in it. We're trusting that you always have our best, our best outcomes of faith in mind. So help us to be thankful for the delays. Help us to rejoice over the intentionality that you show. Help us to use this story, pull the principles and apply it to our stories when we don't get to see those principles as clearly for ourselves. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.